Welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series created specifically for tourism operators. Talking Tourism, the expert series, is the ultimate resource for business owners who want to lift their skills to the next level. If you want to learn how to be a better tourism operator, listen on. And welcome to Talking Tourism. My name is Rachel Williams and I am your host for this episode in the podcast series for Tasmania's tourism industry. The series is, of course, brought to you by the Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. And today I'm joined by a lady who, truth be told, I actually feel like I want her job. And I love the definition of her job, which is to be Tasmania's wine queen. I am talking of Shirley Davis. Well, Davey, sorry, I haven't been drinking, but welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rachel. And you're not the first person that's tried to push me out of my job. I must admit, I feel very, very privileged and pleased to have this role. And uh, it's what brought me to Tasmania, to be honest. I just think... Uh, well, in fact, I know, and I am a little bit biased, but before I moved to Tasmania, of course, I made a decision to be here. And I absolutely firmly believe that the wines that our little island allows us to craft, that our talented Tasmanians nurture and and produce into these wines are the world's, uh, well, all right, world's best. Yeah, probably, but definitely country's best. Yep. I mean, they're just amazing. That's what's brought me here. So, so 10 and a half years you ventured. That's it to Tasmania and you've been in the role of Wine Tasmania CEO for that period of time. Slash wine Queen. Gosh, over a decade. What's Lots of change, lots of growth in the industry, lots of more pride around the industry as well. Definitely. It's been amazing. And I think one of the things that's so exciting about this job and why I guess I'm still here more than 10 years into the role is because it's just been so different. It's been one of the one of the reasons I guess that brought me to Tasmania is I really wanted to be back into a region, a wine region where you were kind of grassroots and you know the the best was kind of still ahead. We'd so much great stuff had been happening in Tasmania, but it was still only very much at the beginning of its journey. And people, people kind of you know it's sort of like the broader Tasmanian story. People kind of went, oh yeah, you know you're growing. I had a few people even ten years ago say, well, why are you moving to Tasmania? And, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But I firmly believed at that stage, the wines that I was seeing, the people that I was meeting were just, it was where I wanted to be. And over those 10 years, just watching the growth and the maturity from a physical perspective around our vines, but also more importantly from our people, it's just been phenomenal. And as you said, Rachel, the confidence I think is one of the key things that we're not great at valuing ourselves in Tasmania, I don't think, Um, but we should and we kind of take this external validation and people go, you know what, you're really good. And you're like, oh, okay, all right, great. And it leads to that uh, leads, to, leads to that confidence and I've just seen that grow so, so, so very much. We're in a great position. If my research is correct, you represent about 98% of Tasmanian wine about that. producers. So what are the other 2% doing? What do we need to get them to, to get on board with? Well, look, again, I think it's true of wine regions the world over, but it's also very true of Tasmania. We have a lot of tiny businesses. So when we talk about wine businesses, some of them might be hobbies and they might not necessarily see a role to be involved with a professional organisation, which is completely valid and respected. So I think that uh, I think we count vineyards in terms of if somebody's got a couple of rows of vines planted, you know, they have a vineyard. So they wouldn't necessarily join their professional organisation. <laughs> so I think that's hopefully that's kind of the 2%. We've got our membership list uh, up on the website and there aren't too many names that are missing no. from that, I've got to say. 
In fact, one of the really interesting things throughout the COVID experience has been that our membership numbers have grown. So in terms of people wanting support, in terms of people wanting connections, um, I think that's been one of the really great positive things that's come out of this whole experience. And I think Tasmania does it better than most. We will talk about that more as we go, but I'd love to just get a little bit about your background knowledge. You're the spokeswoman for all things wine related in the state. What got you interested in wine other than the love of drinking it? Yes, yes. Well, that's no small reason, but uh, I I think it's fair to say I pretty well fell into it. So uh, not literally, of course, not physically. Falling uh, over after drinking too (laughs) much. (laughs) Nothing like that, but uh, neither of my parents consumed any alcohol. So they were teetotalers. And so I wasn't brought up in an environment around alcohol. I didn't have any real appreciation for wine. I had my best friend, Hannah, when I was growing up, lived in the Barossa Valley. So we used to stay at her place and used to sneak over the road into the winery and, well, not into the winery, but the winery grounds and the smell and all that sort of stuff. I don't know if that planted a seed somewhere back then when I was a kid, but um, no knowledge whatsoever of wine. I, I literally, before I started in this sector, knew that there was white wine, there was red wine. I didn't really like either because, you know, those terrible beverage packages you have at dinners and conferences and stuff usually. I didn't like it at all. And uh, I started uh, started my life in hospitality and just loved the social nature of it. And I had an opportunity to apply for a, a nine-month role with the peak wine body at that stage. And the role was to help with the very first international event to promote Australian wine to the world. And I went, that sounds like me. I'm 19. I can do it all, you know. And uh, But it just sounded fantastic. And it was like, you need to do everything. Whatever needs to be done, just do it. So it's like, yeah, sure, I'll throw myself into there. And uh, they gave me a chance. I was as green as could be, but they gave me a chance. And some of my first experiences with wine were sitting around a table, not dissimilar to this one, with some of the legends of Australian wine. The Len Evanses, the Ian Riggses, the James Hallidays, some of these people that had been involved in taking the Australian wine sector from being kind of nothing, a cottage industry, to being a bit of a powerhouse. And it wasn't just the people, but the wines they shared. Just open your eyes to this new world. And were you intimidated or did you think, look, I've got nothing to lose? I was lose. 19. You know, <laughs> who's intimidated at 19? I, I, I should have been. I was very respectful, I think, but uh, no, you know, I just... I was just so excited and, and, and inspired by it all. And uh, a lot of people talk about getting into the wine sector and finding it hard to leave. I think it's because there's something that's living in every single bottle of wine and more so when you're in what you, what you might call marginal areas, so cooler climate areas like Tasmania, they're considered marginal. And what that means is that every single year, you don't know exactly what you're going to confront. So you don't know how you have to manage a vineyard. You don't know what qualities, you don't know when you have to harvest. You don't know anything. You don't know what volumes you're going to get. You know that your quality is going to be pretty good if you keep an eye on the vineyard, but you just have no idea beyond that. So every single bottle is different and even made by the same person, grown in the same vineyard, two years apart, they'll look different. So you just fall in love with it. It's like it's this living thing and it just uh, connects you, connects you to the ground. And people the world over have really fallen in love with Tasmanian wine. And I'm just thinking, you know, since I was allowed to start drinking legally over that 20-year period, how much it has changed and how much growth there has been in the sector. What are some figures now of how many people are involved in the industry and how many how much volume are we creating? Yeah, um, good question. And it does vary. So because those the seasonality is so distinctive here, 
we can have uh, 100% of our volume, which might be, it, it roughly works out to about a million cases or a million dozen bottles every year, but that can vary up or down by up to 50% year on year. So we kind of take a long-term average. This is a, you don't get involved in the wine sector to have one year of, you know, experience or success or whatever. It's a really long, long program. It's capital intensive, it's labour intensive and the wine, good wine takes time. So about a million cases, most of it's consumed in Australia. So about 95% of it is consumed in Australia. A lot of it doesn't leave the island. We've got a huge support amongst locals, direct visiting cellar doors, but also through our restaurants. They're some of our best ambassadors. And then we share about 5% of that with the rest of the world and they want more. And I love that you have the term value over volume. And even though the the change is so significant year on year, potentially, I'm assuming that the value doesn't alter very much. No, it only goes up. We, uh, so we, um, it's, it's a very deliberate thing that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much wine we produce if nobody's consuming it. Right. So we always focus on value. Um, it's a, when we look at some of the figures around how Tasmania compares to the rest of the country, we look at value. So we are 1% of the country's total wine production, but we actually are attributed 4% of its value. That's way more important. I'd rather be, I don't care how small we are, if that's the value proposition. We've seen the same thing. I just had some export reports come through, as I said, only a tiny little bit of our wine actually leaves the country, but we have an average value of about $16 a litre by comparison to uh, I think it's $7 something for the rest of the country. So we just overrepresent in that value piece and that's where we need to be focused, all, all of us. And we're obviously renowned for our sparkling and Pinot, mm-hmm. but there must be some amazing innovative people out there doing some drastically different things as well. Yeah, you bet, yeah. And uh, the lunch that we had today was was one of the great things. We brought along so many different wines and people, yep, absolutely, you promote Pinot Noir and sparkling, they're the things that we're known for. They're the things that represent probably two-thirds of what we grow and make here in Tasmania, so they're always going to be the focus. Our island looks after those varieties. But we've got Riesling, we've got Gewürz Traminer, we've got um, Table Chardonnay. I mean, t- we got, most of our Chardonnay goes into sparkling, but uh, we've got beautiful Chardonnays. We've got people experimenting out. Uh, interestingly enough, one of our fastest-growing uh, planting or varieties being planted is Shiraz. Um, it's only tiny, but there's it's growing. We've got Tempranillo, we've got this, we've got that. We've got all sorts of things. It's And a lot of it is just for us Tasmanians and for people that come and visit. And I'm talking to Shirley at the Tourism Industry Council Tasmania's um, annual conference, and you did say that you had a a luncheon today called Blend, and it didn't go long enough for your liking. <laughs> no, look, it's, uh, it's pretty hard to... Pretty hard to celebrate and kind of talk about the Tasmanian wine sector in an hour and a half, and uh, we knew it was going to be nice and nice and relaxed and casual. Uh, and we set it up so that we had individual wine producers hosting tables, and they all brought along six different wines. And so our guests sat at whichever table they wanted to. Ooh, speed dating, yeah, it was a bit like speed dating. It was a bit like speed dating, except I think uh, I think all of the keys stayed in the handbags <laughs> and pockets. I don't think it got that far. Um, but uh, no, we, look, it was fantastic. And it's just, it's it's what we do. It's what our tourism experience is. So when people come to our cellar doors, they don't just want a robot saying, hi, welcome, you know, here's this and here's that. And you get an experience that you, you know, you could have stayed at home and had it. This is about the people that grow it and make it being in our cellar doors. 
So they're the people. Uh, I mean, some of the people that we had in that room, they're all incredibly modest, but um, some of the people that we had in that room, the wines that they grow, the grapes that they grow, the wines they craft, they're phenomenal. And here they are just rocking up for a lunch, you know, have a chat. Here's a few wines, eskies. You know, it's just amazing. It's, it's It really, I think, epitomises what Tasmanian tourism is all about. Yeah, that laconic sort of character who doesn't hold themselves in, you know. But with the best produce. Yes. So, you know, here's a, here's a casual oyster just, you know, from the water right here. Oh, yeah, and here's a wine that, you know, has taken two years to come to bottle and, yeah, I'll just share it with you. I mean, that's, it's just, it's great. And I think it's amazing too that a lot of producers are now seeing the value, as you've said, about the the locals and the tourism, that they don't actually have to export a lot of it. They can sell it at their vineyard in their cellar doors. And I'd love to actually know the figure of how much money has been invested in cellar door infrastructure and the associated spin-offs that come with that. Yeah, a lot. And I guess those figures that we collected were kind of pre-COVID. Um, we know that even during these months that we've had borders closed, there's been more investment. We So total total investment or economic contribution is in the order of $115 million a year, but that's across vineyards, wineries and the cellar door. So I'm not 100% sure exactly how much of that could be attributed to the cellar door piece because it's kind of all in together. But we've always known that our locals are so incredibly important. And even if it's interstate visitors that are coming through our cellar doors, more often than not, they're being brought by locals, right? Locals that you've got to come here, it's my favourite vineyard, it's my favourite cellar door. Um, We know that pre-COVID, one in five of all of our visitors were coming into a cellar door as part of their stay, so which is huge. We also know that they were spending about a thousand bucks, those visitors were spending about a thousand bucks more on average during their visit. So we were getting to good numbers, but more importantly, good yields, good value. So where to from here, I guess, is probably the big question, but there is no question that Tasmania is going to be a destination of choice, and people are going to be coming for the for the experiences, for our produce, and for our Tasmanians. You know, and that you know that that traditional sort of hospitality. Yeah, and obviously every industry has standards that they want to set and aspire to. Mm. And I'm under the impression that Wine Tasmania was hoping for a ten percent year on year increase for the economic contribution and the direct employment that comes from wine production in the state. Yeah, COVID decimating those figures slightly? Yeah, look, at the employment side of things, you know, we all know how tough that's been. Um, what we've seen, generally speaking, I mean, the support that's been available from both federal and state governments has been critical. There's no question. We've seen a lot of our businesses try and hang on to and support their work, their existing workers where they can. And we've seen people that have moved from what might have been a cellar door to help out in the vineyard or help in the winery. So employment, there have definitely been some casualties, but employment, we've really, everyone's really tried to retain workers. Um, So certainly haven't grown employment, but um, we've tried to support, you know, all of those great people that make up our workforce. The main areas we sell our wine, a cellar door and through restaurants and wine bars. So, and those two channels obviously have been hit so terribly hard. What we've seen is people selling less wine, understandably, but they're selling it at better returns. So they're instead of selling through to a distributor or a wholesaler into a restaurant, they're selling it to customers that are coming directly to them and seeking them out. So that value piece, which has continued to be a focus, has actually grown. I'm also interested in actually seeing those figures, but I've had people, producers that I've been talking to, and they've said, oh, 
really felt bad, but then we ran the numbers. It's like we haven't sold as much, but wow, the returns are actually so much better. So, yeah, I think now at this point in time, it's nowhere near as bad as we feared and there's definitely pretty strong signs of recovery that are starting to emerge. And so you just shift those expectations moving forward in your strategic plan, just alter them slightly, or do you still think that moving forward, even if it might take an extra six or 12 months, they're still reachable targets? It's a good question, and I probably don't exactly know. Yeah, I think we probably need to reset those targets a little bit. I think we probably need to see what happens in terms of visitation because that's been such a strong focus for us. I think we need to understand what that's going to look like. And summer's really going to be the key for us. You know, people returning and that'll give us a bit of a better indication. So from your assessment on the ground, what have the the good businesses done during this period? A lot of people have called it like the housekeeping time, um, spring cleaning. Um, What have the good businesses done to ensure they come out the other side well and that other businesses can take stock of and, and learn from? The good businesses were doing the work before this global pandemic hit. So the businesses that have done the best are the ones that have been focused on building their customer base, on building their loyalty, on building wine clubs. So the businesses that have done well have been doing that for quite a number of years. And so when this COVID hit, they were able to go to those customers and say, gosh, you know, didn't know this was going to happen. It's pretty tough. You know, we'll we'll send you a few offers. We can still deliver wine to you. See, that's one of the benefits for us. It's not purely based on people visiting Tasmania. We can still dispatch wine around the country. So those businesses were good businesses before this hit. Some of our businesses that haven't put the time necessarily into building those customer bases or having a really strong online presence, e-commerce presence, have been doing that in a fair bit of a hurry. But yeah, it's really interesting. Even some of the stories, it's quite a mixed bag. So over on the East Coast, where Tasmanians love to holiday, right? Some of those cellar doors have done better traffic than any other winter period. But then if if you go further afield to some of the more regional areas, it's obviously a pretty different situation. So I, I don't know the answer to where we're going to be. I think we still need, we'll be pretty bullshy and ambitious about our targets, but I think we just still need to see what's going to happen a little bit before we really know. And I suppose the challenge is too, like a lot of businesses have had time to do some back-end work that they wouldn't have normally had time for, but things will pick up and they will be busy. For them not to drop the ball where they have it now and actually to plan ahead, is that a key bit of advice you would give? Definitely. Some have done it. It takes a bit of a leap of faith to kind of reinvest in your business and to expand during times like this. Not that we've had times exactly like this before, but um, I've seen quite a few examples of where businesses have have done just that. So they've they've actually expanded knowing that things are going to improve down the track. And I think that in itself helps because um, we look, I guess, so much at uh, what our peers and our colleagues are doing. So as people are showing confidence and investing in their businesses, it's kind of you know, it's filtering through to the rest of the wine community and hopefully the tourism community as well. And do you see any other innovative projects on the horizon um, that are going to, I suppose, add value further to the cellar door experience? For sure. I suppose yeah. the sky's the limit, but it is. where are you seeing things? Yeah. Two, so two things. One is one is just more on innovation. We've seen producers coming together to collaborate to promote like mixed wine packs so that, you know, make it easier for people to actually choose wines and choose Tasmanian first. So that's not the cellar door side of things, but that's been really positive, that collaborative piece. On the cellar door front, people have 
really completely change their businesses. So remember that at the moment, the medical advice and the technical term is that we can't be vertically drinking. So the cellar door experience has had to be seated. In my opinion, I think that's been a really great thing because it slowed everything down. You know, turning up to a cellar door and just hanging at the bar and, you know, you've Quick, got, I've your, got 10 minutes, exactly, give me everything, yeah, gotta yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't really care and you're distanced by a bar and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's fine. It's fine, but it's not a personalised experience and it's certainly not a premium experience. So our cellar doors have had to change the way that they run their businesses. It's not been easy um, because we've obviously had Tasmanians coming in and Tasmanians are coming in to hang for an hour as opposed to come in for 10 minutes and buy two cases of wine. So it's quite a different thing. But what it's done is made that experience far more personalised, far more premium. It has a value attached to it. People need to book because there are limitations around how many people can obviously fit into our spaces. I think all of that's really positive. So people are thinking creatively about bringing produce like cheese or chocolate or whatever it might be into the tasting. They're thinking about taking people behind the scenes. They're thinking far more creatively than just somebody coming into a cellar door and your standard tasting. So I think that's here to stay and that definitely has value. And it certainly is a more intimate experience, isn't it? And that's good that it's going to stay in your opinion. People are used to going into cellar doors and tasting wine for free, right? Not so much in Tasmania, but around the country, absolutely. Why should that be? I mean, why should we not associate a value to something that takes a year to grow, all this time to make, and then it probably is matured for another year or two years? Why don't we attach a value to that? It's crazy. So I think that putting a value to it, but also making sure that it has a really positive experience for our visitors is critical. And I think that's here to stay. And On a global scale, how competitive are we compared to some of the other amazing wine producing regions in the world? So in a global context, we're extraordinarily competitive. Our fellow Australians think that we're expensive. And when it comes to Australian wine, we are amongst the highest value and of course the best, but you know, we are amongst the highest value. But as soon as you take Tasmania into that global context, we're competing with Champagne, with Burgundy, with Oregon, with Central Otago, and we perform, you know, in terms of the quality that we produce for the value and all that sort of stuff, we are, we're light years ahead. Yep. Holding our own. And there's some amazing achievements individually as well that people are creating these amazing different products that are winning global recognition, aren't they? That's exciting. And you must love being able to put out those press releases when they happen. So good. You know, I, I, you know, you kind of, you almost glaze over when there's yet another international accolade, which is a silly thing to say, but it has just been so crazy. I think one of the things that all of Tasmanian businesses complain to is the fact that we do have scarcity. I mean, we just simply can't be a big producer of anything really. So that keeps people wanting more, right? You can't get it, then you want it that much more. So that links directly into our visitation experience. So the best way to experience Tasmania, particularly its wines, but everything that we've got here is to visit. That's our strength. So we keep the world wanting what we're producing and what we're offering, the more they'll want to visit and the more they'll value it. And in a perfect world, if you could have everything you wanted on the table right now, like what would the industry do in your mind to to make it, you know, the one percenters, what would they do to make it even better if you had the time and money and energy to do it? Um, I'd like Bass Strait to disappear. <laughs> no, no. Is that possible? <laughs> I like Bass Strait for a lot of reasons, but uh, right now I don't like it very much. I do like it. I'm, I like it more than I dislike it, but access to market. So we're in a situation, it's hugely competitive. We're on a tiny island at the edge of the world. 
we have to, so we have to bring in our glass bottles, we have to bring in our barrels, we have to bring in our everything across Bass Strait, grow our grapes, we make our wine, and then we have to ship it back over Bass Strait to find our, you know, our loyal customers. It's uh, particularly over these past seven months, not only is it incredibly expensive, the delays that we've had. So we, I mean, people have actually lost customers, either through the fact that it's very difficult for producers just to offer free freight. But if you go to wine producers on the mainland, that's pretty well the norm. So it's very difficult for them to absorb that. And it is definitely far more expensive. And we can't get our wine same day into Brisbane or Melbourne or like other regions can. They're the, that, that is for me, if we can find a way. That's what you're going to be working on in the I coming years. I am working years. on it. I'm working on it in the coming weeks. Right. Watch this space. Is <laughs> yeah. that what you're saying? We've I heard hope. it here first. There's, there's going to be change. I, I certainly hope. If we could solve this one, it would be a game changer, not just for the wine sector, but for so many other producers that are small scale and they're sending box or parcel at a time, their wonderful stuff to other Australians and it's just it's just such a challenge. So, yeah, that's I'd like to solve that one. I don't know if I will, but I'll, I'll try. But you'll be sticking around for a little while longer <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, you to bet. Where, see how you go. Where else would you be? Hey? <laughs> Nowhere. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Shirley. The Wine Tasmania CEO, watch out. I, I am watching you and, and checking after you if that job becomes available. I think it'd be something that I'd Line be up. right down my alley. <laughs> no, just tricking. Well, that is uh, all for today's episode of Talking Tourism. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed having a chat about all the wonderful things happening in the Tasmanian wine industry. Uh, you can, of course, listen to lots of different episodes on lots of different topics involved in Talking Tourism podcast series which are brought to you by the Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to Talking Tourism, brought to you by Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. For show notes, other materials and episodes, head to tict.com.au. Be sure to come back every fortnight for a new instalment of Talking Tourism. Talking Tourism.